A reading from John 18, 33 through 40. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied, Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, You say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of the truth listens to me. What is truth? retorted Pilate. With this, he went out again to the Jews, gathered there, and said, I find no basis for a charge against him, but it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, No, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Sherry. Thank you, worship team. Thank you, Subi, for being here with us today. Good morning, everybody. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors here. God did an amazing thing. It was really pretty incredible. His people, the Israelites, were in slavery, in bondage, in Egypt for about 400 years, and the situation was not good for them. They cried out to God, God heard their cry, and God rescued them from Egypt, rescued them from captivity, and it was no small deal. There were signs and wonders in the forms of plagues that were done on the Egyptians. There was a hard-hearted Pharaoh who didn't want to let them go, but God parted the sea and led his people to safety and to freedom. But it wasn't an easy journey. It wasn't comfortable to follow God in the wilderness, and the Israelites grumbled and complained again and again and again. Finally, they made it to Mount Sinai. God invited them to come up the mountain and to meet with him, but they were too scared. Being in the presence of God is a pretty serious thing. So they asked Moses to talk to God for them. God saw that they needed instruction from him on how to live this new life of freedom as his people. So for about a year, the Israelites camped out at the base of Mount Sinai and listened to the instruction of God through Moses how they were to live in his kingdom. Now, the Israelites, like you and I, don't always listen so well. One of the very first things that God told them was, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. But while they were still at the base of the mountain, and while Moses was up listening and talking to God at the top, they became afraid 
and they became angry. And the Israelites made a golden calf, an idol to worship and depend on. They said about the calf, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. These are the gods who provided for you, who rescued you, who gave you what you wanted. So let's give our attention and our hearts and our devotion to the golden calf. But the calf couldn't actually give the Israelites what they wanted. That's actually a lot of how idolatry works in the Bible. Maybe you've heard it talked about that idolatry is anything that is more important to you than God. And while there's some aspect of that that's true, uh, in the Bible, it's almost always connected, idols are, with provision and protection and power, which is what we see in the golden calf incident. It was the calf who provided for them, the calf who brought them up out of Egypt. The Israelites struggled to listen to the instruction, to the voice of God. They struggled to recognize the truth because it wasn't the calf that brought them up out of Egypt, right? So often, you and I, we have our attention pulled away from the true God to something else that we think we need for provision and protection and power. So often we don't see the truth of who God is and what he's doing in our lives and what he's doing in the world. How he has brought us up out of captivity to live a life of freedom in Jesus. Most of us aren't free, though. We're trapped by fear and anger under a golden calf, captivated by it as we pour out our hearts toward it, hoping it will give us what we want and what we think we need. It can't actually give us what we need, though. We're almost at the end of our series, 10 Questions, where we're exploring barriers to the faith, things that keep people from following Jesus and seeing him as good and beautiful and true. And today's question is, does God have a political party? Oh, boy. This is a sensitive, sensitive topic. Our nation right now is in an uproar, and it is extremely divided. And the church is pretty divided as well. When I told people that I was going to be preaching on this topic, I got responses like, there's no way to talk about that in a unifying way in the church. Or things like, why would you want to talk about something that is just going to make people uncomfortable? If it's that sensitive of an issue, then it's probably something that we need to talk about because that means it has some kind of grip on our hearts to affect us in that way. And anything that has a grip on our hearts like that, we need to take to Jesus. We need to expose it and we need Jesus to loosen its grip on us. I also know it's a sensitive topic because I help 
lead the Colossian Way class earlier this year. You may remember that Colossian Way is a curriculum that helps people in churches talk about politics without swaying anybody to a particular side, but also while staying unified in Christ. That is not an easy task. And let me tell you, after 10 weeks with that, with that group, I could tell you it is not an easy task. There was tension during that time. Well, I think we did pretty well though, right? Anybody who was in the group there? I think we did. Yeah, thank you very much. I think we did all right. And not only is this a difficult topic to talk about, but it is definitely a barrier to people coming to faith. So it's extremely relevant for our series here and for what we need to think about as followers of Jesus, because we don't want to create barriers for people coming to faith, right? Now, people might be offended at Jesus, and that can be expected at times, but if we are creating additional unnecessary barriers to people coming to Jesus, then we are hurting the mission of the church, the very mission that Jesus himself gave to us. Okay, now having said all that, let me just say that I love you. I care for you very much. Some of you I know better than others. Some of you I haven't even met yet, but I care for you. I'm not trying to offend you. I'm not trying to hurt you. I'm not trying to stir the pot. I'm not trying to pick a fight. As I talk about politics, I'm trying to do the same thing that I always try to do, which is to point you to Jesus. If you're upset at me, please come talk to me about it. Don't just walk away. We don't have to agree about everything, but we can talk about it, okay? Now, I'm going to talk about four things in relation to politics today. Politics as idolatry, politics as witness, politics as formation, and politics and unity. And I'm going to have responses that you, could, you, know, you might interact with after each one of those. And my main point is, the politics of our world are not a sufficient means or end for the kingdom of God. I'm also going to show you a few comics because we need to lighten up our hearts a little bit in our mood, right? God knows we do. All right, here's the first one. Maybe. First comic. Funny comic coming up right here. It was awesome. It was the best comic. You would have loved it. Here it is. Politics is the art of nothing is possible. I think that might be the case. Let me just tell you, by the way, it's really hard to find several comics that were nonpartisan and so not offensive. I think I did it okay, though. In our passage today, we see Jesus before Pilate. Pontius Pilate was the Roman governor of the area of Judea under King Caesar, the occupied area of Judea. Now, the Jewish leaders had brought Jesus to Pilate because Jesus had just offended them one too many times. And they wanted him put to death. But they didn't have the authority to put anybody to death themselves, so they're bringing him to Pilate, which means this is serious. They're out for blood. The accusations against Jesus are that he's claiming to be a king, 
something that Caesar would not like very much. That would be a conflict in powers. A king is somebody who has authority. A king is somebody who people obey. There can't be two kings. Even Jesus said, you cannot have two masters. So let's look at this passage again. Verse 33, Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea? Jesus asked. Or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you've done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. Jesus is indeed a king, guilty as charged. For a king, though, he seems to be in a pretty vulnerable place. His kingdom seems to be at stake. He's about to be sentenced to death, and you can't have a kingdom without a king. The Jewish leaders have rejected Jesus. They have rejected God as their king, as they have throughout most of the Bible. They say to Pilate just a little bit later in this passage, we have no king but Caesar. Now, Jesus, he can stop what's about to happen. He has the power, he has the authority, he has the resources to put an end to the entire Roman Empire or to any other kingdom in the world. But he says his kingdom is not of this world. This is a fundamental lesson for us to learn and relearn. Jesus' kingdom is not like the kingdoms of this world. It is fundamentally different. If you've ever read like The Hobbit or seen the movies or The Lord of the Rings, you know that kings don't just lay down and accept being conquered unless they've been enchanted and maybe they've got a little mad or something like that. The kings, the rulers of this world fight for power and control. Jesus' kingdom does not fight for power or control within human systems. If Jesus was going to do that, he would have done it then. He said, if this were my kingdom, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest. Elsewhere, he said, do you think I cannot call on my father? And he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. But Jesus isn't interested in fighting that fight. He's doing something bigger. And at the end, he's going to be king over everything. He doesn't take over any kingdom or government of this world. He doesn't need to. He needs to take over the kingdom of our hearts and of our wills. But even with that, he doesn't fight to do it. He invites, and then we choose. Will we trust him? Will we look to him for provision and for protection? The other option is to build our own golden calf and to look to that for provision and protection and power. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up 
out of Egypt. These are your gods, America, that make you great or that give you the needed hope or that give you the change you need. Whatever the slogan is, just fill it in. With this option, you don't need to trust God because you've got other means to get what you want. Well-respected theologian Michael Horton says, the idols that identify the Christian cause with left-wing or right-wing political ideology are merely symptoms that Christ is not being regarded as sufficient for the church's faith and practice today. Do we rely more on political means to accomplish certain ends, or do we rely on the Lord Jesus? Realistically, what do you rely on more? I can tell you what's better. Jesus. In Psalm 106, the writer is remembering the past, and it says, at Horeb, which is another name for Mount Sinai, they made a calf and worshipped the cast metal image. That's the story I was telling you about. They exchanged their glory for the image of a grass-eating ox. Putting all of our attention and trust and hope in politics is like exchanging glory for grass. That's how every idol works. Because here's the grass. Our political system isn't going to solve the problems of the world. The way that the language that we used in the Colossian way was that politics consists of imperfect solutions to intractable problems. We can't solve the problems that are there. Kind of reminds me of this comic here. Throw the bums out of Congress. Leave it up. We'll need it again in two years. <laughs> the same thing every cycle. Now, you and I know that. Is there anybody in here who thinks that the American political system is perfectly good at bringing about what is good, beautiful, and true in our society? Anybody? No way. So why do we get so wrapped up in it when Jesus, our king, and his kingdom is not of this world. I think a primary, though not an exclusive, reason is fear. Sometimes we're afraid of what will happen if we lose, whatever losing might mean for you personally, politically. We're afraid of losing protection and provision and power. Now, fear is understandable. But we have to keep reminding ourselves as followers of Jesus that we don't have anything to fear. The Bible says that perfect love casts out fear. Jesus is before Pilate, about to be sentenced to death. He's going to be beaten mercilessly and crucified. But on the third day, God raised him from the dead. When that happened, he was inaugurated as king over all. The Bible says that he is head over every power and authority, 
and that he triumphed over them by the cross. Or as Jesus said to his disciples just before he was arrested and taken to Pilate, in this world, you're going to have trouble. But take heart. I've overcome the world. Historian Daniel Williams said, says that the cross gives a radically different rationale for Christian political participation because it demonstrates that we do not win through displays of power. It also shows that we already won the ultimate victory and our sovereign king is already on the throne. We won't triumph by political means. We will triumph by the cross. We will triumph by identifying ourselves with Jesus, not with a golden donkey and not with a golden elephant. God didn't want to create a national kingdom. He created the church, which transcends every nation and every government in the world. Okay, just a few responses for you here. You can talk to Jesus about the role politics plays in your life. When you recognize fear when talking or thinking about politics, consider what you're actually afraid of and take those fears to Jesus. And if you feel like politics has a real grip on your heart and on your soul, then repent and turn to Jesus. You'll probably have to do it a lot like we all do, right? A continual process of turning back to Jesus. Okay, second one, politics is witness. Let's keep reading our passage. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. The reason that Jesus came into the world, the reason that he was born among us, wasn't to overcome the political systems of the world. It wasn't to infiltrate them. It wasn't to conquer them. It wasn't to use them for his gain or for his purposes. The reason in this passage is to testify to the truth. The Greek word here for testify is martyreo. It's where we get the word martyr, which is fitting considering what's about to happen to Jesus. It's to testify as a witness. John uses this word in one form or another more than 80 times in all of his writings in the New Testament. So it's an important theme for him. In the book of Revelation, he says, grace and peace from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, there's our word, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Jesus is the faithful witness. He came to testify to the truth. It's the same thing that Jesus' followers are told to do after Jesus' resurrection. They are to testify to the truth of their experience with Jesus. That's why John says later, and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior 
of the world. Remember, we're talking about barriers that people have to Christianity, to following Jesus. And politics is a serious barrier. In fact, for people in my own family, it might be the biggest barrier that, it, that there is for them. I've had people in my family tell me, I will never be a Christian because of this politician or because of that politician. And in more recent years, some of them have just come to associate Christianity with Christian nationalism completely. Christians are just trying to take over the country, make it a theocracy, and force everyone into their way of life. I want my family to know Jesus. I want my family to know his goodness and his beauty and his truth. But what they see is a testimony of politics rather than a testimony of the truth that the Father sent his Son into the world to be the Savior of the world. Not the Savior of America, not the Savior of the American way of life or a particular political party. He's the Savior of the world, but his kingdom isn't even of this world. I want my family to know that. Jesus' followers should have the same values as Jesus does to testify to the truth and to, and to get people into the kingdom of God. But when we bring Jesus as a banner into our politics, we aren't testifying about him. We're testifying about our politics. So when people don't agree with our politics, which is a secondary issue at best, they don't see Jesus they see our politics that they don't like and then associate Jesus with something they don't like. The Apostle Paul, on the other hand, tore down as many barriers as he could. He wrote to the Corinthians, though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. I've become all things, to all people, so that by all means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. I want to be able to talk to Democrats, Republicans, Independents, whoever about Jesus, and I don't want my politics to get in the way of that. Here's another quote from theologian Michael Horton. While the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, the assimilation of the church to the world silences the witness. If we're using the same political means to get the same political ends, provision, protection, and power, we have killed our witness. Jesus never told us to win political victories, but he most certainly did tell us with great emphasis to tell people about him, to testify to the truth of who he is. We can't do that well when people identify us more with our politics than with who Jesus is. Speaking of witnessing, 
we'd like to talk to you about Jesus, church mice. Come on, that's a good one. <laughs> okay, some responses for you in witnessing. <laughs> Consider what your life reflects. Do people know more about you of your politics or of your identification with Jesus? What barriers do you have in place that may keep people from seeing Jesus as good, beautiful, and true? Okay, politics as formation. Let's read the last part of the passage. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? retorted Pilate. With this, he went out again to the Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him, but it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. Here's the phrase I want to emphasize. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Now, I try not to get too picky about Bible translation stuff, although I really love the study of it. But this particular phrase, I'm not too keen on the translation. I think it's better translated, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. It's not about being on the side of truth, especially in a political conversation. It's about being closely identified with the truth, being of the truth. And when you're of the truth, you hear, you recognize the voice of Jesus. You hear the things that he says, you take them to heart, and then you live them out in your life. A little earlier in the Gospel of John, Jesus says to the people around him, the one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he's brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. What voices are you listening to? We are constantly being formed. Everything in our lives forms and shapes us. Our experiences, our relationships, the things that we watch, the things that we listen to, the news that we consume, the social media that we vegetate on, every last bit of it forms and shapes us. There are a ton of voices in our lives, but the voice that we need, the voice that we need to shape and form us the most is the voice of the Good Shepherd the voice of Jesus. We need to follow that voice, and there are a lot of voices that we just need to run away from. What voices are you listening to? 
One of the helpful things that we did in the Colossian Way class was to have each person in the group share their story, and particularly what political influences they had had in life. I think it helped for all of us to kind of see how we all had different influences that shaped us from childhood on that brought us to the point of thinking what we think about politics. It was humanizing. And I think it was even helpful for us personally to kind of go like, oh yeah, that's why I lean that way. But when we commit to following Jesus, we're saying that we want to be primarily shaped by him and into him, into his image and his likeness. Our identity becomes intrinsically linked to that of Jesus rather than to a political party. The problem is, and there have been lots of studies done on this, particularly by the Barna Group, that people in the church tend to be shaped more by the news and the media than they are by the voice of Jesus. And I'm convinced that that is not a positive shaping influence for us. The people who control the media that we consume view us as nothing but tools. Don't be a tool. Speaking of the news, I'll only give you the paper if you promise not to let the news upset you. Anybody else upset by the news lately? Media, whether we're talking about news media or social media or any other forms, fuels our anger and our fear, which drives us right back to idols where we seek provision and protection and power. And it shapes the way that we view ourselves and each other and people in our society and the rest of the world. And when anger and fear are fueled, it builds the fires of hatred and animosity. God's kingdom, though, isn't built on fear or anger or hatred or animosity. It's built on love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those are the characteristics of the people who are being formed into what they're being formed into when we listen to the voice of Jesus. Okay, just a few responses here for you on formation. Consider if the voices that you're listening to in life are building you up in Christ or if they are fueling anger and fear. And then talk to Jesus about it. Spend time listening to the voice of Jesus in scripture. And when you vote, vote being formed by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Politics and unity. Last one. Building the fires of hatred and animosity is a bad thing. But it's particularly bad when it happens in the church. Society is more divided than ever right now, and the church, it seems, is more divided than ever right now. And it's particularly divided among uh, political lines. During the Colossian Way class, the curriculum made us divide into two groups one night, conservative 
and liberal, and nobody was allowed to pick the middle. You had to choose conservative or liberal. They called it us versus them. It was our most contentious night because it highlighted how we think differently and feel differently politically, even though we were all followers of Jesus. Now, ultimately, in the context of the group, I think it brought us closer together because we talked about it, we hung in there with each other, we apologized to one another, we offered grace, we built relationships, we were just there with each other. But without that intentionality, a lot of the church is probably sitting in this us versus them posture, where political views take a higher priority than unity in the spirit. Listen to Jesus' words as he's praying to the Father. This is from John 17, right before he's going to Pilate. He prays this prayer, he goes out and gets arrested, and then is before Pilate. He says, I'm praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. That's us. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. I've given them the glory, there's that word again, glory, you gave me, so they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. The result of unity in the church is that people will know who Jesus is and that they will, they will know that they are loved as much as Jesus is loved. That phrase, as much as, is the Greek word kathos, and it means just as. So not just as much as, but in the same way that the Father loves Jesus he loves you. That should stop us dead in our tracks. This goes right back to witnessing, to testifying of Jesus. How many of you want your friends, your family, your neighbors, your coworkers, your acquaintances, strangers on the street to know who Jesus is and to know that they are loved by God so much that he would send Jesus into the, or into the world in order that we might be part of his kingdom and his family. I do. If we are divided over politi politics, though, that ain't going to happen. If we, being of a different kingdom that is not of this world, are so entrenched in the systems of this world that we're filled with angst, and animosity, and even hatred, the world is going to look at us and say what they're already saying. I don't need that. Now, that doesn't mean you can't be political. You can be a Democrat. You can be a Republican. You can engage in politics, but you can't let it have such a grip on your heart that it divides you from other followers of Jesus. Here's one of my favorite comics of the morning. Arts versus crafts. Politics has divided everything. 
The trick about unity, though, is that it doesn't actually happen if we avoid the topic. That's just getting along superficially. And it doesn't happen very well when we start with a posture of us versus them with that kind of mentality. In other words, if you think your political position is the only moral political position, it's going to hurt the conversation. The truth is that both Republicans and Democrats have good and evil in their party. And both can justify many of their positions biblically. And both can thoroughly be denounced biblically. That's why God doesn't have a political party, to finally answer the question of the morning. The Apostle John writes elsewhere, God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. Is there darkness in the Republican Party? Yeah. Is there darkness in the Democratic Party? Yeah. And both do moral good, but they emphasize completely different things. All of this connects back to Pilate's question to Jesus. What is truth? If any of us think that we have the corner on the truth, politically or otherwise, we probably need to reflect on that a little bit. Jesus said, I am the way, and I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus himself is the truth. Anything else that we think we know has to be subject to the truth of who Jesus is. Andy Stanley, in his newest book, Not In It to Win It, does a great job of addressing this issue of unity in the church with politics. I recommend it. Tim Keller also wrote a helpful article in the New York Times a few years back. Both of those resources, along with a lot of others, are listed on my notes, and they're going to be published online this week, so you can check those out. Few responses here with unity. Don't put people in a box and assume what they think or feel and why. Engage in peaceful conversations with people who have a different perspective than yours without an agenda to change minds. Ask curious questions to gain understanding. And four, four, never walk away because of politics. I've been talking for a while up here. <laughs> that was a good reaction. <laughs> but I feel like it's, I've just really only scratched the surface. <laughs> and yet maybe, maybe I've succeeded at offending everybody just a little bit this morning. <laughs> just remember that was not my goal. My goal is to point you to Jesus and to get our attention away from the things that aren't Jesus, and frankly, to pull our hearts away from the heavy, heavy influence that politics is having on us. Why? Because Jesus is the Savior of the world. Because Jesus is our King. Because Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. 
The gospel is so much more important and so much greater than any political victory or political fear. I don't know what you're living for, but the life that Jesus gives, life in his kingdom, is greater than if you gained all the kingdoms of the world. Everything else is going to pass away. But life in God's kingdom is eternal. And that invitation to enter into that kingdom through Jesus is here for you today, right now. John wrote, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what, will we, what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. God's kingdom is one where God's love is lavished on us and where we are going to be transformed into the likeness of Jesus. And that love that God has for you is there even when you get super political. But he wants our attention and he wants our hearts. He wants our whole lives, every last bit you're going to give your life to something, but there's nothing else that you can give it to that compares to giving it to King Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, you are our king. You are a good king, and you're beautiful, and you're true. I pray, Jesus, that you would help us to see more fully all of your goodness, your truth, and your beauty, who you are. I pray, God, that you would free us from the things that keep us from you, that we would fully be devoted to you, that our lives would belong to you, that our values would be the same values that you have, that we would be formed into your likeness, that the fruit of the Spirit would be lived out from the inside of us outward. I pray, too, that for the whole church, New Hope, the church in Portland, the church in America, that you would do a refining work, that people would see in the church who you are above all else, our Lord and our King, Jesus. We look to you and we trust you. Amen. Well, you guys hung in there well. We're going to do communion, and we're going to do one song after communion. Uh, this communion, though, when we come into this place, we remember, uh, even though it's just with a symbolic little cup with a little wafer and a little cup of juice, hopefully we'll move away from those things soon. We'll get back to communion the way, that it, the way that we used to do it. But even that, it's still, it's a symbol of the cross. It's a symbol of the kind of victory that Jesus had through the sacrificial giving of his life in love for others. 
the laying down of his life. And then in seeing the power of God in resurrecting him from the dead. He is the firstborn from the dead, which means there are going to be others, and that's us. We have eternal life with Jesus that starts right now. We're in his kingdom now. We've got to navigate this world too, but we're in his kingdom now, and we can live as, we're, as we are to live in his kingdom. And this is our weekly reminder that his body was broken for us and that his blood was poured out for us for a new covenant that we enter into when we choose to trust in Jesus. It's a praiseworthy thing. You can take communion now.